we're really sort of bothered by how much reliance there's starting to be on messaging. So be it email messaging or push messaging or advertisements that follow you all around the internet. Just so much overemphasis on those things as a way to track people and market to them, even when they don't necessarily want to be marketed to. Wouldn't it be great if we could cut down on those messages and wait for the perfect moment to ask the user for the sale because we believe they're likely to purchase? My name is Dan Burkaw, and I am the co-founder and CEO of NAMI ML. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Dan Burkaw built a friendly and powerful way to optimize in-app subscriptions at just the right time. All this and more on Code Story. Tech and entrepreneurship have always been super intertwined in Dan Burkaw's life, through his family and starting to tinker with computers in the 90s. He played baseball when he was younger, along with video games, and interestingly enough, keeping up with foreign policy. I, I didn't know that was a hobby. Currently, Dan studies Brazilian jiu-jitsu and its endless progress and growth and involvement while taking care of his two pets and their three eyes. You'll have to ask him that story. His prior company was in the push notifications world, which became a mission-critical system for notifications, ultimately bought by Oracle. Afterwards, he and his co-founder started looking at the way people monetized their apps, specifically diving into subscriptions. In doing so, they found out there weren't many app millionaires in existence. So they set out to build a better way to sell subscriptions inside app experiences, not only by abstracting the tech bits, but by using machine learning to prompt users at just the right time. This is the story of NAMI ML. My prior company was in the push notification space, and we we built a company over a number of years, me, me and my co-founder, um, that became sort of a mission-critical system for delivering push notifications uh, for some of the largest brands. You know, it's, so it's gone through evolutions uh, as well since since our exit from the space. And we exited um, at, by selling the company to Oracle. And so Joe, my co-founder, and I ended up spending a few years there building sort of the mobile channel of one of the one of the groups inside of Oracle focused on marketing technology. And as we were both thinking about doing something new, we're really sort of bothered by, and this is not a statement about any one company, but really bothered by how much reliance there's starting to be on messaging. So be it email messaging or push messaging or advertisements that follow you all around the internet, just so much overemphasis on those things as a way to track people and market to them, even when they don't necessarily want to be marketed to. And in a lot of ways, it was sort of like a very brute force. Where we arrived at, at NAMI was itself a journey, and, and I've co-founded it again with uh, the same person from the last company, Joe Pazillo. So we're a kind of second rodeo for the two of us together. The long story short is that we started looking at 
other ways that companies monetize besides selling data, right? Because there's a lot of companies that are out there selling data or selling their users out by selling their data, be it through advertising, even maybe they even sell a product, but they're also selling the user's data out without the user really knowing about it. And so we started looking at, well, how, what are other ways to monetize? And, you know, Apple, um, who we both used to work for and are, have been part of that ecosystem for a long time, uh, was starting to encourage app developers to adopt subscriptions as a way to build more kind of sustainable businesses. That kind of perked our interest. And as we started to dive into the data around that, from App Annie, one of the research firms around the app economy, we noticed some pretty startling statistics, which were that fewer than 3,000 apps on the App Store were making more than a million dollars a year uh, from kind of direct consumer revenue. So anything but ads, basically. And that was really disturbing because a million dollars a year or more from only the top 3,000 developers really just didn't seem like it was a very healthy market. So we thought there's got to be a better way. There's millions of titles on the App Store. What if we could help all those other folks that aren't in the Million Dollar Club get into the Million Dollar Club by being smarter about how they execute, how they not only offer subscriptions, but um, how how they package an offering so that consumers will actually want it. And if we do our job in the process, have we contributed towards uh, cutting down on some of those really annoying messages that people are using as a way to try to force people to buy what you're selling versus really supporting businesses that are building building a fan base of users that want to buy what 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 you're putting on the market. And so, what Nami ML fundamentally is is it's a it's a way to sell subscriptions um, inside of app experiences, be it on Apple, Google Play, or other platforms. So we take away all the pain of all the technical details of doing that. And so what that frees the the brand or the indie developer or the large enterprise to do is to start to think about their subscription business as a business instead of thinking about, well, how do I just do the technical bits required to, to sell something? And so it frees them to think about what their prices are or how they're positioning Um, And there's some more that we're doing that we can get into around machine learning that was kind of how we actually arrived at this, uh, another vector around how we arrived at uh, the ML part of NAMI ML. Tell me about the MVP. So tell me about how long it took to build and what sort of tools you decided to use to bring it to life. The initial MVP I will call it more of an MVT, kind of a minimum viable technology. Because as I said a moment ago, the we, we had a specific idea around applying machine learning to help businesses succeed in the subscription economy. And what that was around is, wouldn't it be great instead of every time you launch one of these consumer applications, it hitting you with a message saying, buy now, buy now. Wouldn't it be great if we could cut down on those messages and wait for the perfect moment to ask the user for the sale because we believe they're likely to purchase. And so our original thesis was, I wonder if we could build an ML algorithm that could score somebody's propensity to purchase. And then and only then, if we think they're likely to, prompt them to upgrade. And if they're not likely to upgrade, let's not prompt them and let them sort of immerse into the experience before we're going to hit them over the head with the ask. And so that was the original sort of nugget of an idea. And so the first MBT, as I'll call it, was sort of saying, can we even pull this off? Because one of our core tenants was, can we run that algorithm on the device so that it's done in a really privacy-friendly way? Because 
for us, back to kind of, you know, our, our work in the marketing tech world is we really were turned off by the idea of vacuuming up all this data into the cloud, trying to assemble these kind of massive profiles about users. And so what we had to prove in that first prototype in just a few weeks was, can we train a model in the cloud, um, push it down to an app inside of a smartphone and have it run fast enough to, to not degrade the experience or drain the battery and fast enough so that we could actually impact the experience. Meaning if the user scored likely to purchase and we wanted to do something with that information, could we do it instantaneously rather than doing it at some point down the, the road, like some, some future session that the user came back to the app? We want to be able to do that right, right in the moment we know somebody's ready to purchase. Let's be able to prompt them uh, to make that purchase. And so we had to prove out some technical things. We were able to do that relatively quickly in, in terms of weeks and it was really just using open source tools around training machine learning models. Apple had a developer framework called Core ML that had just come out. It was you know, st still pretty limited at that time, but for what we were doing, it was actually quite adequate. And so that first MVP of just proving uh, that we could execute these models on the device to do the thing we wanted to do took us a few weeks to maybe, you know, four weeks all in after we iterated from there. But the thing is, and the reason I called it an MVT is that what, what we what we knew from the beginning and it continues to be reinforced every day that we're in market is that machine learning is not a product. Machine learning enables us to do some really cool things, but we had to build a, a more full-fledged product of which ML was a part um, to really be viable in the market. And that second part, the kind of MVP around what does the market want, took us a, a lot longer, probably six months or so to, to start to get you know some really positive early feedback, and then um, probably another six months to really have something in the market that we were really, really comfortable with. And so all of, all of a sudden I'm blurring the term of MVP for on you, um, which I know is not necessarily the point uh, of the podcast, but that's just the nature of how we evolved. I'm glad you outlined that. And you touched on my next question a little bit. Dig in a little more to some of the decisions and trade-offs you had to make in the short term. Like I'm thinking more like removal of features because you don't have time or technical debt or we're going to build it this way but we know we're going to have to come back and change it and in those decisions how did you cope with making them at that point two things really stick out at me around that question the first thing is that because we had had prior companies that operated at a pretty terrific scale from a kind of usage perspective we we were both comfortable scaling but also anticipating scaling so that's always challenging from a you know brand new perspective because you don't want to over optimize too soon um, before you even know kind of what you're even building all those war stories from the last time around when we hit a bottleneck or needed to deal with a you know high profile customer launch all those were in the back of our mind, but we kind of had to suppress it a little bit in the spirit of getting to a position where we could put something in front of early uh, customers, get their feedback and not get bogged down in kind of the quote unquote enterprise scale um, part of it. And so that's number one. Number two is 
This is the first company that, of the ones I've been involved in that I, I have, I have a, a pretty large vision about where it can go. Um, I'm thinking one, two, three, four years down the road in terms of how large it can be and not just size, but sort of the impact we could have. And that's very exciting because you can kind of, you know, see the dots. But the, the hard part is how do you focus on the right vectors now versus all the things that you could possibly be doing to get to that future state that you see so clearly in your mind. What it's just ha had to boil down to is we've had to trust our instincts. We've had to depend on our team. We've had to depend on customer feedback to really dri drive our our focus. And I've had to quite honestly let go of, you know, you're not gonna be able to build everything all at once and ship it next week. So we just have to try to prioritize it the best we can, knowing that there's a larger vision down the road for us. Kind of carrying forward from that MVP, from those decisions where you're focusing and you're listening to the market, how did you progress the product and, and even a little bit further mature the product and build your roadmap? How did you go about deciding what was the next most important thing to build for NAMI? It's probably the hardest sort of weekly task that we have. Um, I kind of view our roadmap as three things. There's sort of the, the backlog of vision, vision-based items, things that, that are part of that kind of one, two, three, four-year plan that I mentioned. There's things that are directly related to sort of what we're hearing from customers directly uh, in feedback or enhancement requests or the questions they ask that don't necessarily mean that they're they're making a specific feature ask but the questions spur in us a aha moment that puts an item in a back in, in a backlog and then the third area is really sort of the code quality backlog and so what we do is we uh, we meet on a weekly basis and try to figure out the right balance of pulling items from the vision queue the customer queue and the quality queue so that it's it's, it's as balanced as possible because if we just respond to customer feedback without executing on our vision, we're not going to be where we want to be over the course of some years. Or if we just focus on the quality backlog, you know, we're going to be great in the technical debt regard, um, but we're not going to be moving fast enough to, to do what our customers want us to be doing. And so it's just sort of a, a weekly prioritization process to pull from each and, and make sure that it feels right. And, and that's a hard thing to sort of put your finger on. But it pulls you in the right direction because, you know, as an example, we had a number of things that we knew we needed to do for some customers. And what it meant is this week, now that those items are off of our plate, then we'll pull maybe a little more from the vision or the code quality queue. And so it sort of all works itself out over the course of weeks and months, as long as we kind of try to keep a balance constantly. Before I jump into this next question, how big is your team? The full-time team is seven folks, um, and then we, we do have some uh, contractors, so another two, three folks um, working with us in that fashion. So tell me how you went about building your team. What did you look for in these people to you know indicate that they were the winning horses to join NAMI? Well, two, two factors. Factor number one is we have a great stable of folks we've worked with in the past. A lot of the people I've worked with in my career have been really optimistic, really sort of can-do attitude, not quick to say no, something isn't possible, more likely to say yes, it's possible, only to find out maybe it's more challenging than that. 
So those are some of the characteristics of folks I've worked with in the past that we've hired again, and they've wanted to join with us again. So of the seven FTEs, myself and the co-founder, the other co-founder, our uh, chief architect for iOS, and our platform architect, those four of us have worked together before. That brings up the other the other folks and what have we looked for. And I think it's some of the same characteristics around kind of can-do spirit, um, but also different mindset, right? We always want to try to find diversity of opinion and people with different experiences. And so, for example, our CTO, um, who's been with us a little more than a year, he uh, he's not as strong from sort of like a mobile perspective, but that's okay because a lot of the other folks on the team have a lot of mobile experience. But he's very strong with regard to building um, engineering organizations and actually cross-functional organizations. He was the VP of data at the LA Times before this, where he had digital marketing working for him. He had data science and data engineering teams working for him. And so he's worked with a lot of different types of skill sets. And then thirdly, in his particular case, is he brought the domain expertise around uh, machine learning and data science that some of the rest of us on the team didn't have in a kind of practical way. Um, so I'm always looking for how do you balance different skill sets and life experiences to sort of blend together into something, hopefully, that, that, that works really well together. And then that would be the third piece is one of the folks on the team. And, and then our CTO, I, I knew him, so he wasn't a total unknown quantity to me. But one of the one of the folks that we've hired relatively recently was a total total unknown. And um, we just had to look for, you know, what's what's the this person's spirit? Are they simpatico with us? Do they want to do a good job? Do they do they like like what we're doing? Um, do they have the skills, of course? Um, and so some of those things are really important. I think net net the cohesion that we ha- have as a team is definitely related to the fact that some of us have worked together before. So that was a way, great way to bootstrap us. Let's let's switch over to scalability a little bit. When you're building the MVP, you're progressing the product, maturing it. Did you build it to scale efficiently in the beginning or were you fighting this as you grew? Did you accept that, hey, we're going to build it this way, um, but we're going to have to do some changes later to make it scale effectively or from day one, you built it to where, you know, scalability was always a part of the plan. It was definitely always a part of the plan, but I think it's more of a spectrum. So that is to say that if spending, you know, four weeks of time preparing for scale, when we're still trying to sort of nail the, you know, a a key feature, uh, let's say, uh, might not have been the right trade-off. So it might have been to say, well, what what is the what's a pragmatic way for us to move down the road on scale, prepare for that future state of of wild scale, without getting sort of bogged down or stuck with a lot of architecture decisions today. And that's where the benefit of having people that have been through it before really comes in handy because you know where, where, where your choke points are going to be, and you can accept them confidently, knowing that oh yeah. We know that this is going to be a problem, but we know how we're going to fix it when it starts to show signs that it's going to be one. And then there's other areas where it's like, oh, we actually want to make this investment fundamentally in the platform now because we know if we don't, we're going to be in for a world of hurt later that we just don't want to bear. And so it's just trying to be really pragmatic about it. And back to kind of the earlier point about the focus vectors, you just really have to try to make sure you're looking at that particular topic 
with really objective eyes saying, are we getting ahead of ourselves? And if we are, are we doing it with real intention? Uh, or are we, you know, fooling ourselves that we're going to have all the scale in the world in four weeks? So as you step out on the balcony and look across what you've built at NAMI ML, what are you most proud of? We talked a lot about the team, and I am very proud of the team. Uh, I am proud of the fact that the company has people that have worked together before, and I think that says something about about the group of people if they're willing to do it, do it all again. But I, I actually think the the thing I'm most proud about is our core values. Our, our sort of core values we summarize as, as an acronym called BCE, and what BCE stands for is best company ever, and it doesn't mean we think we're the best company ever. It means that that's what we aspire to be. And it's not a specific roadmap, but it does have a few key characteristics that are really important to us that we use as filters for every decision. And one of them is that we care immensely from some of the stuff we've talked about before. Uh, This will be another chance for me to talk about it. Um, We really care about end user privacy. It might be harder for us to build a certain feature without vacuuming up all this data and putting it in our cloud, Uh, but we've architected our system with intention so that, you know what, there's actually ways that you can build machine learning models, for example, without requiring all this invasive data um, to reside in our data center. And so end user privacy is one of those hallmark things as a company that we think makes it easier for us to recruit great people that allows us to not kind of go down that slippery slope when it comes to some of these pieces around data because it's this thing that we planted the flag and and so if anytime we want to build something new a new feature or something you know that always comes up as a lens that we're going to look at it through and it allows us to check ourselves and so there's some other characteristics around what bce means and is constantly changing and we're adding new things to it but i'll use privacy as is the one that we just want to be able to be very proud of what we're doing from kind of a corporate responsibility perspective. And, and as we build the team, you know, hopefully it actually drives a lot of really interesting innovation. Like I said, recruiting uh, talent, um, people working on really interesting technical problems because it's not the easy way to do it. And so that's what I'm most proud of is that we have tried to put a culture in place from even day zero, really day negative one, that stood for some things. And it wasn't everything that it's always going to stand for, but it was at least some foundational things that we built um, the rest of the team to up to this point with that in mind. And hopefully we'll continue as we scale. Uh, more things will be part of what BCE means to, to our team. No, that's a great answer. And I, I love the BCE acronym. It's really cool. Let's flip the script a little bit. Um, What was a mistake that you made along the way and how did you and your team respond to it? They always say it's never too, uh, this kind of Silicon Valley, you know, best practice, right? Or or lore or whatever it is, but um, it's never too early to ship. And, uh, you know, you hear that and you know that, but, and we knew that, but it's, there's still just this, really natural desire to reach perfection before you let too many people see it. And, uh, you know, I think that was definitely the case uh, on this. Um, we, we talked to a lot of people and gathered a lot of feedback, but actually, you know, showing B 
being willing to show some, show people, we were definitely uh, a little a little late on that. And you know, the the nice thing is it's not a fatal mistake. It's just the thing that you realize when you when you start showing more people is that range of viewpoints thing again. You start hearing feedback that's just a totally different idea than you than than your original idea, or it's a different way of looking at it, or it's even just using different words. Right? We had a meeting recently where. The person basically said, "Okay, so I, uh, just to make sure I understand what you guys do, it's this blank, 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 right?" And he, he filled in these words. It was it was great because it, they were totally original. It was not how I'd ever thought about our company or what we do, and I would have never heard those things if I hadn't had the meeting. I think it's just a lesson that just keeps on getting reinforced in my mind. And even though it's so easy to sort of protect your baby uh, in the laboratory. So what does the future look like for NAMI and for the product and for your team? Well, for the for the company, it's that march of BCE. We're going to keep going on that journey and try to figure out how to make sure our, our company environment is, is an attractive one. By the way, uh, I didn't mention it earlier, but we intentionally chose to be a virtual team from day one. And I've been in both environments. I've had startups um, in, in both a office environment and a remote environment. And, you know, it was actually a really tough call um, because there are definite, definite pros and cons of both. But we, ended, we arrived at a, an answer of being completely remote. And it's this time around, it's been really great because we've been able to hire some people that we wouldn't have considered otherwise uh, just based upon their location or, you know, sort of willingness or not unwillingness to move. So we'll just keep going on the BCE journey. So that's the sort of the company vector. On the product vector, as I mentioned, I mean, I feel like our roadmap is at least our vision and part of our roadmap. It feels multi-year. And so, but the exciting thing is really starting to get some pretty exciting customer traction. So not only is it just our vision, but it's being, it's being, amplified in some cases by what customers are telling us and it's being augmented in some cases by things we had never thought about the customers are telling us so that's really exciting so we'll just keep moving along on that in addition we we're going to just continue to expand our sort of scope and that will also mean from a team perspective as well Um, we're a very technically focused team today I think uh, the more we get in the market and start celebrating some of our successes kind of from a marketing perspective that'll drive that next stage of growth for us. And then we'll start growing out kind of more and more non-technical parts of the team. And that's exciting because that's just going to bring yet yet more uh, viewpoint diversity to us as well. Finally, I really want to continue to pull the thread on privacy and what machine learning, there's this traditional wisdom that to do AI or machine learning, you need all the data in the world. And that's just the wisdom out there. And that's why people talk about, you know, the lead that Google and other companies, Amazon have to be able to be the leaders in this. And I think there's truth to it, of course, but we really want to keep pulling the thread of saying, can we add more and more and more value over time for our customers using machine learning, but in a way that we can be proud of, a way that the end users, if they knew how we were doing it, would feel good about uh, and not feel like, oh, wait, why did I, why am I doing this? Why am I giving up my, my rights to this? So um, that'll be something that we just continue to pull the thread on and, and hopefully make great progress. And we'll see where that leads us in terms of 
product innovation or, or new product offerings or extensions to our existing product. I think it's an area that's ripe for a lot of innovation, not just from us, but other companies as well. So that's exciting stuff. I mean, it sounds like you have a, a bright future for the product, a bright vision for the product as well, and your core values, which is really exciting stuff. I liked the pulling the thread. I like that of, you know, adding value to your customers. Even, you know, there is truth to having a ton of data and that making machine learning more accurate perhaps, but, you know, how can you continue to push that envelope further even, you know, even when there might not be as much data available or aligning with your users on allowing them to gain value from sharing their information uh, is kind of what I'm getting getting from that. That's, that's really cool. So who influences the way that you work, Dan? Um, CEO, CTO, architect, person, um, anyone, really. Name a person you look up to and tell me why. It's going to be a cliche answer, sadly. Uh, I feel like it should be somebody very creative. <laughs> but um, it is, it's, it's really just that Steve Jobs ethos coming back to Apple in 1996, late 1996, and, and looking at all the things they could possibly be doing and focusing and just reducing it down to four products, a consumer desktop, a consumer laptop, a pro desktop, a pro laptop. And that was the product set for years. And then the iPad and or I'm sorry, the iPod, you know, sort of the rest was history. And so just that idea of focus really was something I learned at a, you know, at the right age, I think, so that um, in all the things that I've done, I have really tried very, very hard to uh, live by that example. And then, or, you know, build companies that have built things with that that in mind. It's never easy. I mean, that's the, that's the thing. That's why people don't do it. Some of these large companies that design things by committees can't ever focus down to what really matters because it's just too, it's just too difficult to make hard decisions, especially in that environment. So, you know, Steve Jobs for sure, but also really that team that return to Apple and try to figure out how to both save the company, but then set the stage for future innovations. And one of the most interesting things is that they, since that 1996 return to present, they've always figured out the right balance between what are the technologies, the core technologies they should own versus the core technologies that they should find from somewhere else. So as an example, you know, the core of Mac OS is based on Unix. Uh, for, with the next operating system, but ultimately BSD Unix under the hood. And they realized, you know, it didn't make sense to work on kind of that most foundational level, although they certainly contribute and add their own special bits there, but they didn't have to write it from scratch. Um, but, you know, as they've gotten more mature and become a much larger company, they've realized the value of owning the silicon. Um, so, for example, the relevant to the work we're doing, the fact that there's now a neural engine inside the iPhone that allows those core ML machine learning models to run instantaneously is, is largely because Apple chose strategically to focus on building out their own chip team and executing a roadmap over a number of years. So I just admire everything that they've done in recent history, sort of the recent you know past decade or two really to not just write the ship, but make the, the, the right bets for where they wanted to go in the future. It's just, I think it's a case study of, of, of immense uh, degree.
If you could go back to the beginning, what would you consider doing differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? I'm going to answer that not as the beginning of this company, but the beginning of kind of me in my formation. We talked a little bit about my past and, you know, tinkering with computers, but, you know, when it came time to go into you know, high, late high school and kind of college and from there, I was one of those kids that, you know, always felt kind of like, oh, I wasn't going to be the, the, the smartest guy with math or I wasn't going to be the best programmer. And so I ended up going to business school um, instead of pursuing CS in part because I was kind of self-taught on the, on the CS stuff, but also because I just didn't feel like I was ever going to be as good as, as, as some people. And um, a few years ago, I, as I was deep in this machine learning, kind of educating myself about that space, I came across this article that was about kids that excel at math versus those that don't. Um, and what really struck me was that they fa- there's a lot of factors that answers that question of who excels versus who doesn't. But one of the things that researchers found across uh, some, some studies is that people that self-label as not good at math, it's self-fulfilling. They end up not being good at math or end up not liking math. And so if I could go back and do it all over again, I would try to t- do less self-limiting because that's what it is. It's self-limiting. In, in that spirit, it was about math, but it's in all sorts of things. I mean, I did baseball for a while, and then I stopped playing baseball as it started getting more competitive uh, towards high school. And in part because I had just self-limited that I could never compete as well as um, the people that were competing. And so part of it is like you just have to get into the arena if it's what you want to do. Maybe the flip side of the answer on baseball is like, it's actually not where my passion uh, was at that moment in, in my past. And so I'm not sure I would have gone back and said, okay, I'm going to go play more competitive baseball. But it's just an illustration of everybody's just a person. And the, the most successful people in the world, they're just another person too. Sometimes it's it's just about an ability to, to see that you can do it. And, um, and so I would do a little bit more of that, uh, go back and do a little bit less self-limiting, I think, if I could do it all over again. Man, I love that answer. I think that that happens a lot with people. And I think that people don't go out and try enough because of that same self-limiting thing. Um, I like the reality check too of like, well, maybe I'm just not passionate about baseball, right? Because that's honest and and real, but it's not self-limiting. So definitely appreciate that answer. And I think that a lot of people are going to find a lot of value from that answer. Last question, Dan. You're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who has built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off. Maybe they're on their way to an investor meeting. Who knows? But they can't wait to show it to you on the plane. Having gone down this road a couple of times now, what advice would you give that person? You know, there's going to be a lot of ups and downs. And, and part of the battle is just to persevere, of course. But the most important thing beyond persevering is making sure that you are also taking care of yourself. You know, it took me three startups to figure out how to operate on a kind of a day-to-day basis where, you know, I'm not putting myself last in terms of, you know, routine or exercise or things outside of work. And, um, you know, that's a pretty slow learning curve, quite honestly. So hopefully if you're just doing this for the first time, 
I would hope that folks would try to really be intentional about, you know what, if so-and-so investor doesn't like what you're doing, it's not the end of the world. And don't bear so much of the stress of that on just working harder. Working hard is good, but working you know, yourself to death without taking care of your mental health and without um, going on a run to clear your head or whatever it is that you do to sort of decompress, like it's got to be routine because if it isn't routine, um, then it becomes sort of the, the anomaly and that's where things get really unhealthy. And yeah, you may be successful, but um, at what cost? That would be my number one piece of advice for, for folks starting out. That's great advice. Well, Dan, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for being on Code Story and telling the product creation story of NAMI ML. Thank you. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.